You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'll be speaking with author Emily Bleeker about her new novel, When We Were Enemies. Emily is the best-selling author of six novels. She is a two-time Whitney Award finalist, and she's also part of a local comedy improv group. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you for having me. All right, so I got to start off with the improv question, right? <laughs> Um, is there any correlation between what you have to do in improv and how you write or the writing process? Initially, I didn't think so. I thought I'm going to jump on stage and give this a shot because I hadn't done it since high school. But I've been on this team now. After I took classes, I auditioned and I got on the house team. And I've been on this team for five years. And I have come to see that it's, it's the same. Like in a lot of ways, you're writing on stage when you're improvising. It's your first draft. You don't get to edit it and put it out to the world in a different way. But it, it's helped me with drafting because now I write like I am performing improv. Ah, that's interesting. You know, we've had folks on the show that were lawyers in another context or teachers in another context, and they talk about how that inf influences their writing. But you're our first comedy person. <laughs> That, and how it influenced theirs. That's good to know. All right, let's talk about the new book, When We Were Enemies. Now, the novel moves from present day back to 1943. And I'm always curious, what are the challenges in crafting a dual narrative so that you don't lose the, you know, the, the, the narrative itself or the flow? Yes, I, I actually wrote this one a little differently than I normally do dual narratives. Usually dual narratives, I go back and forth. I kind of have it planned out ahead of time. This one, I ended up writing them almost separately. Like a, until about the middle of the book, I tried going back and forth. And then the second half of both of them, I just wrote them as though they were their own novel and then figured out where they fit together uh, when I put it back together after I finished both timelines. And that really seemed to work for me because I felt like we got a really good character arc, the full complete character arc for both timelines this way. It works really well. But I'm always curious, and you've just answered it, whether you write the two timelines separate and then integrate or whether, you know, you kind of do it back and forth. Uh, well, whichever way it worked well here. All right. In the book, your main characters are Elise, the daughter, Jace, Graceland, excuse me, the mother, and Vivian, the grandmother. And Vivian and Graceland have both been actresses, as I recall. As a child, Elise, um, how, how do you, as I'm thinking from Elise's standpoint, if both of your, your mother and your grandmother are actors, how do you know when they're being sincere? How do you know when they're not being sincere? And that's, there's a little bit of a thread of that in the novel, right? Yeah, especially with Graceland. And then her brothers are also actors, too. Right. So she's the only one who has chosen to step away from the spotlight. and But she still works with famous people. So I do think that's something she craves, is how do I tell what authenticity is? And it, I really feel like Vivian, her grandmother, has that. She has been able to tap into that. But her mother is almost always on stage. You know, that's, that's, yeah, the, the good novels, and this is a good novel, have universal themes. And the authenticity is really a key one here, you know, because I found myself think, reflecting it back on my own life and saying, okay, did I get that right? Did I get that part right? All right, so you, we mentioned Elise, and she is a little bit unlike her mother and grandmother, at least as the path that she took. Talk about her backstory. Who, who is Elise? 
Yeah, Elise grew up in uh, with Gracelyn Branson, and her father was also famous too. You know, so she grew up kind of in the spotlight, and she had talent as an actress, but she made a specific choice to step away from potentially having that lifestyle. Um, except for she was very close to her grandmother, and she would go to award shows with her grandmother, and she ended up falling in love with an actor. But unfortunately, while they were engaged just weeks before they were married, her fiance passed away because of a a glioblastoma brain tumor. And she is still mourning that loss, I think, as she says yes to Hunter, that she will marry her new fiance, who is a very successful businessman. So she's still feeling a bit torn because she lost what she thought would be her future. Yeah, and her her first love, and I wanted to ask you about that, is Dean, the name uh, Dean in the, in the novel. And I, 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 you know, my read of the novel is that he's really he really was her true love. Yeah. And I I can't quite wrap my head around the hunter proposal. And by the way, for folks listening, the novel starts off with the hunter hunter proposal and her having to decide whether to accept, which I thought was a great hook to to bring folks in. But am I reading too much into it to think that Dean was really her true love? I think up until that point, I think that he was her true love. I think she learns more throughout the novel about what love is and about the opportunities for love uh, that might present themselves in the future. But I do think that Dean was the the true, that was her, um, her idea of what love is. And it was probably not matched in Hunter, which is why she was so conflicted. Well, you know, and this is another universal theme, and, and I can only reflect back on my own. We have probably all, most of us, if we're unfortunate, have lost someone. And we, if we're not careful, we make that the prototypical thing we got to strive for in every other relationship, right? And so she, she deals with a little of that, I think, at least. Yes. And it becomes almost a fantasy, something right. that perhaps you're worshiping that could not have been as good. And right. one of my favorite things about Elise is she comes to understand that where she's like well maybe this relationship also is only so perfect because it didn't continue you know like her relationship with dean and i think that is something that you have to balance and you have to figure out in real life like what is the reality of love what what are some realistic expectations of love and i like that about elise that she's pragmatic enough to understand that perhaps this romantic version of love that she thought she would have had with Dean if they had continued on and gotten married and not had cancer interrupt them may not have been actually realistic. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly interested in pursuing that whole line of questioning between when you're young and when you're old, but we probably should talk more about the novel than, than, <laughs> uh, than that. All right. So one of the threads in the book is fascinating is a film that's being made about Vivian, about the grandmother in which Elise, at least initially, is reluctant um, to participate, but it even results in choosing the location of Elise's wedding, right, as part yes. of the film. Now, when you were when you were putting this together, did this evolve organically, or did you already know that's where you were headed? Actually, it didn't. It, I, I mean, it evolved organically, but I definitely... 
I knew that I wanted to tell the story about Vivian and the POW camp. And I knew that I wanted there to be a granddaughter tie in. So that's really where it all <clears throat> started, you know, and I just had to make the decision if, if the granddaughter was also going to be famous, mm -hmm. but I found it more interesting looking at her as someone who is an outsider, but understood what fame was like. Like that was a more compelling story to tell for me than telling, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, than telling another fame story, you know, that Vivian already had. I got you. Well, it works well. Let me ask you this. I, I, and I could ask, I could have asked this earlier. When you decided to write this, did you start with characters or did you start with a plot idea? Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, I've had authors tell me, you know, either way, what was it in this case? Yeah, in this case, it was my, uh, it was just a little comment that my father had made about my grandmother. And he said, we were driving through Mississippi. This book's set in Indiana, but right. she lived in Mississippi. We were driving through Mississippi and he was like, oh, your grandmother used to work at a POW camp there. And I was like, those words don't fully make sense. What? <laughs> and, and then he said, and she had a platonic love affair with an Italian priest. And I was like, huh? There you go. <laughs> more. And so he kind of told me more. I, at that time, this is years before I had even become a writer. I didn't even understand that we have POW camps here right. on U.S. soil. I had no idea. And I will tell you how naive I was at that time. I didn't even know that Italy switched sides in 1943 in the middle of the war. And so as I came to understand that, I just became fascinated with the idea. And I wanted to learn more about the reality of what happened in my grandma's story, which there's not as much because she had already passed away. And then, of course, my brain just couldn't stop playing around with the idea of a POW camp and an Italian priest love story. Well, that's fascinating that you, you, you that's how this originated, because my next question was and I looked it up that. Um, so part of the book occurs in 1943 at Camp Atterbury in Indiana. And in fact, there was a real Camp Atterbury, which was a POW camp in Indiana. Did you did you know that's where your grandmother was or did you have to do some research on POW camps to come up with? Yeah, she actually was at a camp in Mississippi, but That's the book right. I had written before was set in Mississippi. So my agent was like, you know, maybe let's branch out and not go back to Mississippi or you might just always be writing about Mississippi. That's your thing, you know? And so I was like, okay, I don't mind doing that. And I live in Chicago, so I wanted to find something that was somewhat local and that I could go visit and Camp Atterbury still, they have a museum there and they still have the chapel that the Italian um, prisoners built, the chapel in the meadow, they still have it there. And wow. so I wanted to go and visit and explore that, the true, the real history of it, and really see what I could get from experiencing that. And also I could go, they have a beautiful, beautiful uh church there too, a Catholic church, a Holy Trinity. And so I was able to go there also and tour there. And it's beautiful. Like, it was just so perfect for the story. So I knew that was my setting immediately once I went and visited. Okay. So in the story, Vivian's parents are both Italian immigrants. Okay. Very personal to me. I'm Sicilian on both sides. So I, that, I latched onto that. You've told us a little bit about the autobiographical part related to your grandmother. Is any of the rest of it autobiographical? 
Um, well, first of all, my husband is 100% Sicilian, so you guys are probably related somehow. Yes, I'm sure um, we are. Yeah, my, on, my married name is... Both together. Yeah, my married name is Barbaro, so okay. we'll, ah. we'll see. We'll see if you guys are related somewhere. Okay. Um, but, um, but the rest of the story is really 100% made up. I, okay. you know, so it was just really inspired by my grandmother's, you know, occupation for that little bit of time. Oh, I guess the one other thing are the postcards. There are yeah. postcards from the Italian priest. Those were real. So my grandmother and this priest that she was friends with, they remained in contact for the rest of his life. And he right. would draw postcards and write to her for the rest of his life, which I think is kind of an amazing story in and of itself. It really itself. is, yeah. Did she speak Italian? No, no. Nope. Oh, okay. All no, right. he spoke a little English. I guess, I guess his English got better the more that they talked with one another. Okay. Well, in the story, Vivian, now we're back in 1943, she shows up to get what she thought was going to be a clerical job, but because she understands Italian through a series of events which people can read about, um, she ends up in a slightly different role. But she's also a junior hostess for the USO. Now, I'm old enough to know what the USO is or was. For the people who may not know, talk about what is a junior hostess for the USO? Yeah, I actually did a lot of research on this. I found it very fascinating. So it was, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, the United Service Unit, I think is what USO is. Um, but there are so many different um, letters that go with World War II. But um, what would happen is that there were the, the soldiers would need a place to go to feel as though they were at home. And this was, um, they, this could be in different towns, at different camps. And it was also a service opportunity for people in the community or for women or for performers. Um, Vivian goes on to be a performer who travels. Um, and there were different different circuits that they would travel and perform. And the USO is still active today. Mm -hmm. And so there are still USOs all over the world. And they're still uh, performers that are, are donating their time and their service to, to go and bring some, some happiness to the, those who are serving. So, yeah. Well, and one of the things she does as a junior hostess is she's something of a I can't remember what they were called, but they, basically they would dance with the soldiers yes. at, at a certain thing. Now, she was also a singer, but she also danced with soldiers, right? Yeah, that's what a junior hostess is. So, and they had these very strict rules um, about what they could talk about, what they couldn't talk about, what they could wear, what they could do. They couldn't date anybody. They weren't supposed to. They would get let go. Um, they couldn't wear certain colors. They couldn't wear skirts past a certain length. Um, but yeah, they would go and dance with the soldiers. And then they were told to let their soldiers pretend that they were their girl. Like, it just let them imagine that they were their girl back home. And that was supposed to give them comfort and make them feel as though they weren't going to be forgotten. Right. Well, and in this case, Vivian, although she ends up being a performer, she does do some dancing and she meets Tom, who yes. she ends up marrying, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so that's that's one thread in the story. But at the same time, she also meets an Italian prisoner named Antonio Trombello. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, tell us about Trombello. And he, he becomes a priest, right? Trombello is a priest. Oh, he and was a so, priest. I'm sorry. Yeah. So he was a priest already. Um, and priests did actually actually did not have 
to, they were not conscripted, mm -hmm. uh, but they could volunteer um, mm -hmm. to the Italian army. And there were, um, I mean, conscription was actually a difficult thing in the, for Italians at the time, because very many uh, people did not want to go. There was not a lot of training. It was very dangerous. I mean, all war is dangerous, but it was incredibly dangerous because there was no training. And most of these men were just put uh, the belief of the whoever was in charge, the general of this group that in particular that we're talking about, they put them in Africa and said, as soon as they start shooting, you'll know what to do. That's literally what they told them. They didn't. And it was just a massacre. And so many men died. So many were captured. And really, it was just horrific. And so Trombello, the character, has decided that his service that he's going to do to his fellow men is that he is going to also um, join the army and that he is going to then be a spiritual guiding companion to, to those who are, are his brothers. Well, and is, is he modeled on anybody or is this pure imagination? It's it's pure imagination. I mean, I know that that was a reality. I mean, right. he's modeled after the Italian priest that my grandmother knew. And so the, that was a reality of an option at that time that was seen as valid, um, especially for young priests, speaking at, like young men, because everybody else was leaving and being basically taken away. And there was definitely some pressure and some guilt. And that went along with being the only young person left behind, you know. Um, but in particular, like completely specifically somebody else's story, no, it's not. All right. Well, let me ask you about character development and in particular in this book. So authors will often tell me that if they create a good character or good characters, the characters help write the story. Now, that sounds crazy to people who don't write. Okay. Have you, did you have that experience with this book? And if so, who was the principal character helping you push you along. Oh my gosh. Uh, that is exactly how it works for me where I, Emily comes up with a story and then my characters make it real, you know? And, um, I would say definitely Elise and Vivian. Vivian was a huge pro like a huge proponent. Like that, that was, um, probably number one. So my mm -hmm. next book is actually the rest of Vivian's story. Ah. So that's how much she really stuck in my brain. Um, but I also really fell in love with both of the priest characters. We haven't talked about Father Patrick yet, right. but both of them were such good hearted men. And I think that you know, like there are bad men in this book too, but I love focusing on, on good masculine, like good uh, examples of positive masculinity. I have three sons. Like, I think it's important to have that out in the world so that they don't need to be afraid of like, you know, that masculine equals angry or aggressive or abusive, you know? So, so I really came to enjoy those characters. All right. Well, you mentioned Father Patrick. Talk about his backstory, what it is about him, to use your language, that kind of drew you in and kept you fascinated by him. Um, I like that he was he was a person, just a person, a lot like Elise, just on a life path that he thought was going to work out for him that had nothing to do with uh, being a priest. And then his life was derailed in a different way, but a similar way than Elise. And he, he made different decisions than she did. You know, he looked 
to God for comfort and for um, for guidance in that time. He kind of gave his whole life over to that. And I found that very, I find that very fascinating and interesting. Um, just breaking down religion in general too. this idea of completely people completely giving themselves over to their faith. Yeah. And you know what I thought that could be mishandled in some instances. In this case, I thought it was, it came across as very genuine, right? Which, and which being a non-believer, pulled me in as well, you know, that, okay, I, I can appreciate that. I can understand that. So, all right. One of the issues in the book or themes in the book, and we don't want to reveal too much though, is family secrets that get unearthed generations later. What is it about such secrets that can affect the family going forward without them even knowing about it? You know, there's something called epigenetics. I don't know if you've ever heard of epigenetics. And I thought of that when I was reading it, it's that now, epigenetics, as I understand, has more to do with trauma, but trauma in one generation can actually affect the genes going forward. But family secrets can do the same thing, right? Absolutely. And I think I'm fascinated with family secrets. I think that all of my books have secrets in them, and it's because everybody has them. And like, I think if we look at social media and things like that, we all try and present ourselves all as being perfect and things are going so great and look how happy my family is. You know, there's this kind of idea that the more somebody talks about how great their marriage is, the worse it probably is behind closed doors, you know? And so I have always been fascinated with that. And I also love the idea of kind of exposing those things and not in some nefarious way, like to be harmful or hurtful but so that we can be more open about the the reality of things. I guess that's a theme is reality so that we can be willing to maybe share our own struggles in a safe way. And um, that's kind of what all of my books deal with is seeing how life changes once you're willing to be honest and once you're willing to be open. Yeah. And, you know, and you're talking about the Internet and social media or whatever. Um, We also live in a time where it's a little bit easier to find some secrets out. You know, you think about Ancestry.com and things like that, where I I read in the Wall Street Journal seems like every six or seven months that somebody discovered they had a sister or a brother that they didn't know they had, you know, something like that. All right. Well, let me let me uh, end with this. Now, you're writing a book of fiction. You're creating characters. Vivian, Elise, Tom, you're putting them in certain circumstances, right? And then you have to figure out where they go and how they deal with those. What do you learn about yourself when you do that? A lot. Um, I think it is. What did you learn about yourself in this case, if you can? Well, I I don't know if you've read uh, Body Keeps the Score, you know, that it talks about how when you talk about how trauma is passed down, this this is talking about how our body keeps track of trauma in our life and how sometimes the only way to process it is to go all the way to the end of the feelings of those traumas. So instead of trying to stop the pain, Mm -hmm. going all the way to the end. And I think that is what happens when I write. And I don't write necessarily always about myself, but I think that there always needs to be a kernel in there of something that is real to you, something that you have experienced and that's something that is authentic for you to be able to write about it in a way that can relate to other people and their emotions. And so like I've been through a faith transition recently where I've 
change from a, a more kind of conservative faith of my youth to other belief systems. And I do think that that is something that I absolutely processed while writing this book. I absolutely went through um, those thoughts of both. I've been on both sides. I've mm-hmm. been on both sides of, I 100% give myself over to maybe I should think more about this and and try and think through what I believe and why I believe it. You know, So I think maybe I relate to Father Patrick in that way. I got you. Well, in writing, I've heard many people say this. I think it's true for me as well. Writing, it's not like you wake up one morning and say, I think I'll write. It's part of who you are. And it it can be very therapeutic, right? I mean, you know, and as you write and get ideas on paper and those types of things. It can. And it's sneaky, though. Like I'm, you don't go out being like, I'm going to write about my religious trauma today. You know, it just kind of rises to the top. And I think sometimes I don't even notice it until I'm done. Like I had cancer in my twenties and then I didn't want to talk about cancer, think about cancer, read about cancer. And then I wrote a book about cancer (laughs) and I still look at that and I'm like, wow, I can't believe I did that. I had, I was it brought up feelings of fear when I read anything or I watched anything or even really talked about it. But once I wrote that book, I felt comfortable being able to talk about my experiences from my past. So I didn't even know I was doing it. And mm-hmm. it writing healed me in a way. You know, it's interesting you say that. I taught uh, memoir writing classes for a while. And I would say this at the beginning, and it was always confirmed at the end. I would say, you think you know what happened in your life. But when you're forced to write it down in a way that somebody else will understand it, you're going to find out some new things. And I'm guessing that you had that experience when you wrote out about the cancer. Oh, yeah. I had that experience every time I write, yeah. every single time. But I think if I went in trying to write about it, it wouldn't happen. Right. I think it just has to happen naturally. It was time. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Uh-huh. You've been listening to the Writers Forum, and I've been speaking with author Emily Bleeker about her new book, When We Were Enemies. Emily, is there a social media site or a website or something that folks can go to to learn more about you and learn more about your writing? Yeah, I'm, um, I have a website, emilybleeker.com, but you can also find me on Facebook, Instagram. And if you like me talking about my cat, you can come see me on TikTok. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm going to have to introduce you to mine in a little bit. Um, Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It was delightful. Folks, music for the show is provided by Valerie Hunt Jester. Uh, The Writer's Forum is produced by our very own Tyler O'Brien. Tune in next Tuesday at 4 p.m. or Wednesday at 5.30 in the morning to hear the next segment of the Writer's Forum.